Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios, Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to be resuming our tour of the Outer Plains as presented in the Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition Manual of the Plains. Our next stop is the Concordant Opposition. Now, this is described as the plane of true neutrality. And in the world map that they present in Manual of the Plains, it is pictured at being it's pictured as being at the center of the multi-universe. So since all these other planes around it represent the varying uh, planes of law, chaos, good, and evil, and even the in-between steps, the, uh, you know, planes like lawful neutral or chaotic neutral, the concordant opposition at the very center is true neutrality. Now, it's not really based on a specific mythological idea, but in my personal interpretation, the way that they present it, it still does serve a mythological function. It's described as being a single plane with a tall tower or pillar in the middle of it. And it can be understood to be the Axis Mundi, also known as the World Pillar, or another motif we see in a lot of religions and cultures is the World Tree. Now, this is, I said, a very widespread uh, idea that we find in cultures from across the world. Some examples of the world pillar or the world tree. Now, the first and probably the most famous is Yggdrasil from Norse mythology. So, this was the tree that the uh, all of the worlds, such as Midgard, Asgard, uh, Jotunheim, uh, Niflheim, all these worlds were just separate branches, so to speak, of the world tree. Now, another interesting interpretation is the sample from Finnish mythology. I have heard some people say it's kind of that idea of this world pillar, and the sample is a device that can provide you with whatever you needed. It can provide gold or silver, wool, grain, salt, just about everything you would need. Now, uh, Jewish mystics, known as Kabbalists, also have the Tree of Life, which is used to symbolize the process in which the world came into being. The Tree of Life is also mentioned in the Bible, and it is the tree containing the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Islam also has a similar belief, the tree of immortality. Now, like in the Old Testament, God forbids Adam and Eve from eating the fruit of that tree. The Quran also mentions another tree, and I'm probably going to be mispronouncing this, but this tree is known as Sidrat al-Munthaha, 
and this tree stands at the end of the seventh heaven, and it is said none are allowed to pass by it. The, a certain tree called the Bodhi tree is also very important in Buddhism. This is the tree that Buddha meditated under for 50 days in order to obtain enlightenment. The Romans also had uh, symbolic structures they built called Jupiter columns. These pillars would often depict Jupiter sitting on a throne. Sometimes these pillars would also depict Jupiter defeating a giant or a serpent of some kind. The symbolism here is the triumph of Jupiter over the forces of chaos. Greek mythology, we also have another symbolic pillar, the Pillars of Hercules. Now, according to legend, when Hercules was performing his twelve labors, he had to capture the cattle of Geryon. Geryon's land was far beyond the known world, and this forced Hercules to separate the boundary in front of him. Now, the Roman historian Tatticus also mentioned Pillars of Hercules in his book Germania, which is his account of his travels among the German people. However, his use of the term may not have been referring to the specific formation on the Strait of Gibraltar. Rather, it is believed the Romans had a habit of crediting Hercules for the creation of any spectacular or exceptionally interesting land formations. Well, speaking of Germany, uh, the Saxons would also erect a sacred pillar called an Irminsul, and it is believed that these pillars were constructed to honor either Odin or Tyr, the Germanic names being Woden or Tiwaz, as both of these gods were uh, seen as gods of war, and in the function of Tyr or Tiwaz, uh, also the function of the lawbringer. And Odin, again, I've talked about him every now and then in our, my episodes, where you know Odin was the ruler of the gods, but he also fulfilled uh, several other uh, functions as well. Hungarian mythology has the Vilagfa. This tree was said to be used by shaman as they traveled to the spirit world. Now, uh, Hungarian shaman are not the only people who had this belief. Uh, the Samoyed people of Siberia also held a similar belief that a shaman would use the world tree to travel between the upper world and the lower world. Many ancient religions also held certain trees sacred. For example, let's go back to Norse mythology. The ancient Norsemen believed that the oak was sacred to Thor. And also, they held the apple tree in regards as well. The goddess Iduna was said to tend to a tree that grew the apples of youth. 
and the gods use these apples to maintain their strength and vitality. They also believed that the first two humans, Ask and Embla, were created from an ash tree and an elm tree. Evergreens are also another important and noteworthy tree, and that may have been because they were seen as symbolic of immortality, because while other trees lost their leaves during the winter, the evergreen would stay green throughout the course of the year. And of course, in the modern age, we don't quite go that far, but we still have the practice around uh, Christmas time of bringing either uh, a live tree into the house, or in my case, bringing an artificial tree up from the basement and decorating it. But why? Why do people from all different cultures across the world, why do they have this common motif of a world tree? or a world pillar. Now, we can only guess, but I think we have to kind of go into the whole idea of the collective consciousness, which, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the uh, psychologist Carl Jung was the one who, you know, was who came up with this idea, the cosmic consciousness that, you know, even though we have people that are from many different parts of the world and many different environments and uh, nations, there's still certain ideas that we're all going to recognize. So let's go back to one of my older episodes. Uh, I think it was like episode 97. I talked a little bit about, and it wasn't the collective consciousness, but rather the collective unconsciousness, that there's you know, underlying ideas that are held by people from vastly different nations and geographical regions. Now, that episode I'm referring to, I talked about the hero's journey and talked a little bit about uh, Joseph Campbell, who wrote the famous book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, where he argued about that there's something called the monomyth of the heroic initiation, that all the different uh, stories we hear from different cultures about the hero and his journey, even though they, they have different people and different trials, they do follow similar patterns. So go back and listen to that uh, episode if you're interested in that whole idea of the monomyth and the heroic initiation but, you know, there's a lot of other common motifs we see, like that of the old wise man or the old wise woman. The underworld being a place of punishment and the upper world or the heavens beyond the physical world being a place of eternal reward. So the pillar... I can see that as being symbolic of strength and stability. And in the case of the Jupiter pillars, they can be seen as symbolic of the triumph of law over chaos. Now the tree, perhaps it is because we can see trees 
as a symbol of life and regeneration. Let's consider the changes that a tree goes through during the course of the year. In the summer, the tree is at its peak. It's full of green, healthy leaves, and its shade provides relief against the heat of the sun. As autumn approaches, the leaves of the tree start to wither and die and fall to the ground. As autumn gives way to winter, snow covers the ground, and the tree is left with only bare branches. However, after the snows of winter melt and spring returns, the tree once again regrows its leaves and once again returns to its full green uh, strength and, and fullness. So that's one way we can also look at the tree as being uh, this symbol that people from all sorts of cultures could appreciate. Another, another possible interpretation is that the tree may have been, been seen as symbolic of the connection between the three worlds, heaven, the earth, and the underworld. We can see the trunk of the tree as our world, the world that we know of. The branches go off into the sky, and this is going towards the heavens or the upper world, a place that, well, ancient people thought they would never be able to obtain. They never could travel into the skies. And the roots, well, they descend down into the unknown regions of the underworld, because, again, back then you didn't really know what was beyond underneath the the, the earth you are walking upon. So let's go back to the concordant opposition and how it's seen in Manual of the Plains. Now it is described as being a series of rings with a pillar at the center. The appearance of the pillar varies. It can take any number of forms, like a tree, a tower, a water spout, or a tornado, just to name a few possible ways that it can be seen. Now things start to happen, though, as you move closer to the center or further away from it. It's said that as you get closer to the center, certain spells and abilities no longer work. And once you get to the 100 mile from the, the center mark, you cannot go any further. Mortal or God, no one can get any closer than that 100-mile uh, barrier. And it's said that this is actually very useful because since most powers and abilities won't function that close to the center, it's often used as a neutral meeting ground. Now, the appearance of the plane itself does seem to vary. Now, the greater powers, gods, they can, they have their own little realms that they've staked out, and they can alter it to look how, like something that they, uh, you know, that they would appreciate, or something that they would feel comfortable in. Though for us mere mortals, it's said that on the first 
visit to the plane, it always resembles something that would be familiar to the character. So, for example, let's say that a monk, a ranger, and a wizard all find themselves on the concordant opposition. And in this case, when we're talking about monk, we're referring to the martial arts type monk, not the cleric type monk. So this martial artist, this warrior monk, might perceive the plane to be a vast martial arts training dojo. A wizard, on the other hand, might perceive the plane to be a series of libraries and classrooms and laboratories and other places of of uh, study and knowledge and experimentation. The ranger might see it as a forest or another natural environment. Now, exactly how this would work, even metaphorically or metaphysically speaking, is confusing. So, for example, what if this party that I just mentioned were to try to enter, like, into a building? I mean, I suppose we could argue that, you know, the wizard or the monk would uh, would perceive it as merely just passing through another door. Whereas maybe the ranger, let's say the ranger pictures the plane as being a forest, he might see buildings or structures as tents or log cabins or cottages. Now, there are several gods that Manual of the Plains does place here. It places most of the main Celtic gods in here. And I'm going to just kind of skim through this section. Uh, to be honest, I'm really, I really don't have a lot of famili- familiarity uh, with the Celtic gods. It's not uh, a religion or a mythology that I've studied very much. So I said it's, I, I really don't know too much about uh, this particular pantheon. But the gods that it places here, there's first Dagda, and this was the god of druids, nature, and fertility. It was said he had a staff that could slay a man with one end or bring him back to life with the other. There's also uh, the goddess Bridget. She is the goddess of poetry, medicine, arts, blacksmithing, and also the protector of livestock. She was also celebrated at a feast known as Imbolc, which was the beginning of spring. There's also Dine Kecht, okay, I probably didn't pronounce that correctly, a god of healing. Uh, There's also Lu, god of crafts, arts, also said to be associated with the sky and possibly seen as a sun god or a storm god. Uh, He is often uh, celebrated at the festival of Lunasa, which is in early August, and it's the beginning of the harvest festival. There's also Morrigan, the goddess of war also associated with livestock and agriculture, Uh, Sylvanus. And Sylvanus is actually a Roman god of field and forest. Possibly his name is a Romanized version of Sucellus, the Celtic god of wine. 
And he was also listed in the Forgotten Realms books as a nature deity in that particular setting. Uh, there's also Manaman MacLear, the god of the sea. Uh, Ogma, and Ogma was one of the gods of skill alongside Dagda and Lu. Now, he was said to have both great athletic ability as well as fighting skill, and he was a god of knowledge as well. It was said that he invented a language known as the Ogham. Now, this is uh, another one of those real-world deities that appears in Forgotten Realms, though in that setting they focus on his aspect as a god of knowledge. And I think it was Ogma, it was said that he had a sword that its name translated something to the effect of the Answerer. So, kind of an interesting little sword because it said that if you pointed it at someone's throat, they couldn't move and they couldn't tell a lie while you were holding the sword at him. So the realm of these deities is called the Land of Youth, or the Fields of Happiness. Now, I can kind of see why they chose to put the Celtic gods here. Since the... Well, first of all, you'll notice that a lot of these gods I've talked about have some association with nature, fertility, agriculture. And that has to do, I think, with the way that the Druid was brought into Dungeons and Dragons. Now, the real Druids were this these priests of the ancient Celts, and they're, they're not really accurately represented in Dungeons and Dragons, as, as far as I know. Uh, they were more or less just brought in as these, these nature priests, and I guess I could see why, because we really don't know too much about them from first-hand accounts, that is, the uh, stories and uh, rules that were put forth in their society. Uh, a lot of what we know about them came from later writers who um, may have, well, they may have uh, taken some liberties in how they wrote about uh, these about these people. Uh, like, for example, I know Julius Caesar wrote about the Gauls and the Celts. Um, he didn't really take a very favorable view of them, though, because as I believe uh, from my history class, this was about the time when he was trying to take them over. So, of course, he's not going to write very nice things about these people that he wants to, again, conquer and, well, well not really enslave, but that he wants to take over. So I, I guess it works if we are considering the Celtic gods as being the deities that druids in various uh, worlds would worship. Another major deity here is the Egyptian god Thoth. Now, I can actually see him fitting in very well in this plane. And it was said that uh, his realm would, as you might expect from a god of knowledge, take the form of a large library. So, the reason I could see him fitting in very well here is because, well, knowledge is something that in itself is neither good nor evil. 
Now, it is also fitting because in Egyptian mythology, he was believed to serve as a mediator between good and evil. He was tasked with making sure that neither side grew too powerful. So in that regards, he's very much at home in this plane. Now, they also place the Norns and the Well of Erd here. Now, this really isn't very accurate. Uh, the Manual of the Plains does talk a little bit about Yggdrasil, where one of his roots, its roots is in uh, Gladsheim, and the other one is in uh, Hades in the realm there of Niflheim. And again, we're going to be addressing uh, Hades and, and Niflheim in a future episode. But they place them in this particular plane. Now, as far as the Norns in Norse mythology, there's actually believed to be a, quite a number of Norns, but usually when someone talks about these these beings, they're usually referring to the three... Um, most well-known ones, Erd, Verdandi, and Skuld. Norns are female spirits who believed were believed to have power over fate. So in some regards, they're kind of similar to the fates from Greek mythology. Erd is the past, Verdandi the present, and Skuld the future. Though that's not exactly the most accurate translation, uh, it's better understood that Erd represents that which is, whereas Verdandi represents that which is becoming, and Skuld is that which should be, or that which has fated to occur. See, uh, in the Norse had uh, an interesting idea of fate and destiny. They believed that the Norns did dictate the fate of all living creatures. And it was often said that when, or they believed that uh, the Norns would preside over the birth of, 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 of children. And sometimes they would foretell that child's fate uh, upon the moment they were born. So it's said that everyone had their own personal fate. And the thing is, though, fate, it's not really absolute freedom, but nor is it absolute slavery, as there is somewhat of a balance between fate and free will. However, if the Norns declared something, well, eventually that that uh that event is going to come to pass regardless of your actions to prevent it or delay it. Uh example from media that I can remember or from a movie, uh the Thirteenth Warrior. There's a, a scene in there where one of the uh one of the Norsemen is telling Antonio Banderas's character, uh it's like I'm trying to remember exactly how it went, but it was something to the effect of that, you know, uh, your moment of death is predetermined, you know, dig a hole and hide in it if you'd like, you know, you're, you won't live a second longer. And there was one story I did hear from a friend that, and, and I apologize, I don't remember the name of the, the, the person in this story, but 
the short version is that there was a, a Norse warrior who was told that his horse would be the death of him. So what he did is he cut off the horse's head and then buried it along a beach, along the sea. Well, this warrior would go on then to live many, you know, live quite a long time, and he went on many, you know, brave and heroic adventures. And he returned home, and he was walking along the beach, and he saw where he buried his horse's head, and there was just the skull there. And he's like, how is it, you are supposed to be the death of me, you know, how, you know, that, that's not obviously, that's not going to happen. And he kicked the horse's skull. Well, as it turned out, there was a poisonous snake that was living underneath the, the skull. And when this uh, warrior kicked the, the skull away, it disturbed the snake who then bit him. And the, the guy ended up dying from the snake's poison. There is an interesting parallel to that in Greek mythology. And that is the famous story of the hero Perseus. And uh, some of my older listeners, you've, you might remember uh, seeing the movie Clash of the Titans, um, or maybe you've seen the new one. I've only seen the original version, haven't seen the old one. Um, I'm sorry, the new one. But uh, the reason that Perseus and his mother were put into a box and cast adrift at sea is that his father was a king named Acrisius. And his king, this king was told that his grandson would be the death of him, or that his son, rather, would be the death of him. Uh, actually, just a moment. I'm just going to pause you for just a second. I can't remember if uh, Acrisius was Perseus's father or grandfather. So we're going to be back in just a moment. Okay, so we're back. And... Uh, uh, if uh, anyone out there is more knowledgeable in Greek mythology than I am, hi Dawn, uh, you're probably screaming at your uh, your media player right now uh, the correct answer. But yeah, um, actually, Acrisius was Perseus's grandfather. Uh, he was told that his uh, daughter would have a son that would kill him. So that's why he put... Uh, young Perseus and Deany in a box and had him, you know, set out to the ocean, which of course he didn't die. Uh, Zeus made sure that Perseus would survive and of course became this great hero. And one day he returned to this homeland and he was participating in a sporting event and he threw a discus. Well, after he threw the discus, the wind shifted and it went into the crowd of people that were watching, hit a person, and killed him. And the person who died was his grandfather, King Acrisius. So yeah, another another example of, again, stories where, yeah, you, you have a fate, you know, there is something that is going to happen to you, and despite your efforts to make that event not happen, it's still going to happen. So, how might we use the concordant opposition in a campaign? Now, I think there is some good potential here. 
Uh, as I mentioned before, the when you get close to the center, most powers cease to function. So that's used as this neutral meeting ground um, between different powers. So I could see an, an example is, well, maybe there's a meeting between a god and a demon lord or an archdevil or another powerful extraplanar creature. And during this, this meeting, maybe they were negotiating over some relic or some bit of uh, lost knowledge. So the perhaps during this meeting, the artifact gets stolen. So it might be up to the players to find out what happened. Now, since the concordant opposition is, theoretically, it's the center of the universe... Now, if everything is spanning out in, in, to infinity, it, not really sure you can say it's the center, but it fits. So maybe there's a marketplace at the center there for powerful magic items. You know, since uh, those items aren't going to function that close to the center, people who deal in these types of artifacts could see that as a safe place to conduct business. Now, I think there's also a lot of potential when you look at what they did with uh, the concordant opposition in the Planescape setting of 2nd edition. Now, I only have a little bit of, of knowledge of Planescape, but I know they did turn the concordant opposition into... Uh, they still kept the idea of it being the central point, but they added the, the city there called Sigil. And as I recall, uh, Sigil is a city of doors where you have all these portals that can take you to other planes of existence. So I think that would certainly uh, pose some interesting ideas. And finally, I think the th fact that Thoth makes a home here, he could also provide some interesting uh, plot hooks as well. Now, as a god of knowledge he naturally wants to learn a little bit about uh, everything. So perhaps he might have the player characters go out and retrieve some sort of lost or soon-to-be-lost knowledge and bring it back to his library so it can be preserved. Uh, I mean, uh, to draw a parallel, when I was talking about Nirvana there was a Chinese deity, and I apologize, I forgot his name, but um, he would he had uh, servants that would do this. If there was a, a civilization that was doomed to fall, to uh, be hit by some great cataclysm, he would send his servants there to collect knowledge and books so it wouldn't be lost. And it was also said that, uh, just to draw a real-world parallel, in the fabled uh, Library of Alexandria, it was said that the, the whenever the ships would come into port, you know, the authorities would always, you know, want to see if the, you know, the, these travelers had any interesting books or maps uh, that they could copy for use with the library. So, yeah, I could definitely see that being, uh, giving some good, uh, adventure hooks for your campaign. Well, that's all about what I have to say about the, uh, concordant opposition for now. 
So I'd like to thank you for listening and have a good evening or morning or afternoon. Whatever it is, wherever you are. And happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.